Okay, guys, we're uh, going through the Old Testament. We're up to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. I really thank the Lord for the opportunity we had to go to that conference. It was a great blessing and encouragement. And uh, my wife pointed out we usually come back feeling sick from there. So uh, <laughs> I got a bit of a cold going. I hope you can hang in there with me if I get in one of them coughing fits. I hope I don't, but sometimes it happens there. So we're in uh, 2 Kings chapter 4. We started chapter 4 last time, and we saw how the Lord takes such good care of the people who place their trust in him. And it didn't matter if it was a widow who was extremely poor and going through some really hard times, or if it was a notable woman in society. The Lord met their needs, and they trusted him. And at this time in Israel's history, you know, the Lord was working through his prophet Elisha. So we stopped last time. We'll get a chance to jump back in here. And we're going to stop at chapter 4 down to verse 38. So let's get into our study there. Verse 38, and Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in the land. So we're told very clearly here there's a famine going on. And I want to remind us of something. If you want to look back to Deuteronomy 28, it's something the Lord told the children of Israel as they were coming into the promised land. He made some tremendous promises to them, but he also gave them some pretty stiff warnings there. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1, it says, Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commands, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And he goes through a whole list of blessings, but one of them, down in verse 12, says the Lord will open to you his good treasure. And he tells us what that is, the heavens to give the rain to your land in its season. And then you jump down to verse 23, and here's the warning that goes with that. If they disobey the Lord and don't obey uh, all that he tells them to do, they want to do things their own way. Verse 23, it says, And your heavens, which are over your head, shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you shall be iron, meaning there's no rainfall. The Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust. From the heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. So the Lord lets us know from that passage onward in the Old Testament, whenever we see a famine going on in the background in Israel, it's a very big sign that says they are not following the Lord. They are not walking with him in obedience. And that's been going on for some time here. But the Lord is, is letting us see something here about this famine because it has something to do, uh, particular to do with the passage today, something in the story. So uh, that's why he points it out. But it is a good reminder that they're not walking with the Lord, so they are going through hard times. They've got a famine that's taking place. Now back in verse 38 of 2 Kings 4, it said, uh, Elisha returned to Gilgal and there was a famine in the land. Now the sons of the prophets were sitting before him. And he said to his servant, put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. So they were sitting 
before him, it tells us. And Elisha here, he was training them, and he was encouraging them in the things of the Lord. Uh, they had this school for these sons of the prophets, and they were helping them to grow in the Lord. And this is in the northern kingdom, so it's really encouraging that the Lord has a remnant there. They're hungry for his word, and they're willing to be trained, and Elisha is involved in doing that for them. We get a good application from this. You know, I think we need to be careful in our own time period to spend more time in training and encouraging those, especially those that have the same gifting that we have. And I'm speaking to myself on this too because I know with our busy lives that we have, we can, we can tend to just rush through things and we may not slow down enough to spend time with those who minister alongside us. But if there are things that the Lord has taught us about using our gifts, then we need to pass these things on. Uh, the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And uh, that's the essence of discipleship, passing on the important lessons that we have learned from the Lord uh, to others. And we heard part of this at the uh, conference we were at as well. They had a pastor there who had been in his church for like 27 years, and he had stepped down from that role as senior pastor, and then he was being used to minister to other churches who were going through very difficult times, and they had lost their pastor, or there was some crisis going on in the church. So the Lord put him in other places, and he was saying that everything the Lord taught him in the 27 years in his church and the things he taught him in each church he was ministering in trying to help those places, it was all kind of like a building process, and he was able to use those things to pass them on to the next church. So a really good encouragement for us in the passage here, too, that Elisha's doing that. He's training these guys in the gifting that he has to make sure it's get pass, it gets passed on. So I think we need to be careful to take the time to do that because it does take time to pass things on. Uh, Jesus spent a lot of time with his disciples to train them for ministry. So like I said, I'm afraid we get so busy with our lives that we either rush that process in our time period or we just kind of skip over it, you know. And let me add to that. If you have any questions on how to do things concerning the, the gifting that God has given you, your spiritual gifts, then feel free to give me a holler, you know. And if I can't help you specifically with your gift, then I'll try to connect you with someone who can. So please don't think I'm too busy to help you. You can call me or text me or leave me a message if you have to, but I'd be glad to help you in your service to the Lord. It's something I don't want to overlook or miss, the opportunity there, okay? Now, when Elisha told his servant here to put on the large pot, you notice, to make the stew, it tells us a couple things. For one thing, it tells us that Elisha was acting by faith because even though there was a famine, meaning there was a shortage of food, he was trusting that the Lord was going to provide for his people, even during the time of a famine. And the second thing it tells us was that there were a lot of the sons of prophets to feed. <laughs> so he needed a large pot for the stew just to make sure everybody got some food. So verse 39, so one went out into the field to gather herbs, and he found a wild vine and gathered from it a lapful of wild gourds. So there are quite a few of them there. And it came and it sliced them into the pot of stew. And then here's the, the side note on that, though they did not know what they were. <laughs> so uh, it tells us something funny is going on here. 
So they had to gather stuff from the field since it was during a famine. They couldn't just go out and gather some crops that they would normally eat because there weren't any. It's a time of famine. So while they're searching for food to put into the stew, they discovered this wild vine that had some wild gourds growing on it. And we're told that they really didn't know what type of plant or gourd they were, but they gathered them anyway. <laughs> you want to maybe check the ingredients when someone offers you some stew and say, where did you get this anyway, you know? And like somebody said, if they saw a bunch of these things still sitting out there during a famine, you might assume that nobody else was eating them, so maybe there might be something wrong with these things. <laughs> and sure enough, there was something very wrong with them. So verse 40, then they served it to the men to eat. So after they made the stew, they started to hand it out. Now what happened as they were eating the stew, that they cried out and they said, man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. It didn't take long for them to find out that this stuff was bad. <laughs> Did you ever have that experience before, you know, when you, you started to take a bite of something and right away you're saying, this doesn't taste right, you know? And these guys had apparently been really hungry because there's a famine, so they probably digested some, or ingested, I should say, and then it's sitting in their belly, and they realize, ah, this is not good. So this stuff must have really tasted bad. I mean, they called it death stew, <laughs> and they couldn't eat another bite. That stuff must have really been nasty, okay? But they did the right thing here. They cried out to Elisha, the man of God, and they asked him for some help, obviously from the Lord. And you know, it sure helps to know that we can instantly cry out for the Lord's help anytime and any place. Yeah, so we, we praise the Lord. That's a really good encouragement for us here. So verse 41, so he said, then bring some flour. So here's his, his solution for that. Bring some flour. And he put it into the pot, and he said, serve it to the people that they may eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. So he had them bring some flour to him, and then he put it in the pot, and then he had them serve the people the stew. And notice that they didn't argue about it and say, some flour's not going to fix this. You know, I mean, I'm not a great chef, but I'm thinking... How's flour going to make something good here, right? And they, they could have argued, but the flour is scarce, you know? Um, and if we put the good flour in the stew, it's going to ruin the flour too, and it's all going to be wasted. I mean, you can see these thoughts running through these people during a time of famine when every little tidbit of food is really important, right? But they didn't argue at all. And that's really cool to see. Instead, they acted by faith. They said, if this is what God says we should do, then this is what we're going to do. Did it make sense? Probably not, you know. Did it seem like it was the right solution? I don't think so. Looked like it could have been a disaster if they're throwing more good food away, right? But they trusted God and they acted by faith. That's cool. So they trusted the word of the Lord that came from Elisha and God blessed their faith and he healed the rotten food. So cool. Now, notice, too, that it doesn't say that the flour, at least it improved it enough where they could eat it. <laughs> no, it says that once the flour was added, 
there was nothing harmful in the pot. Man, that's cool. So the Lord completely healed the food and made it all good. Very cool. This makes me think, you know, of the poison of some of the religions that man can gather in and accept in this world. These religions will cause a man to perish, just like this poison could have killed these folks here. But the Lord can take people who have been eating from those poisonous plants of false religion, and he can give them his flower, the bread of life. And when the bread of life, the true Jesus from the Bible, is applied to a person's life, and Jesus is received by that person, then there is nothing harmful found in the truth from God's word. So yeah, this is a cool picture, I think, for us of how God can overpower and overcome these things. Aren't you thankful that the bread of life can overcome any poison that a false religion puts out there? Man, that's a blessing from the Lord. So the practical lesson that we get from this passage is that even during a famine, and even if the food is poison, the Lord can easily provide healthy food for his children. There might be a subtle reminder here too that for us to pray for our food, you know, you don't want to be chewing in any poison gourds for lunch afterwards here, right? So pray over that food, ask the Lord to make it good stuff. And again, the spiritual lesson we get is that no matter if there's a spiritual famine going on and it looks like there's nothing out there but the poison of false religions, the Lord can provide the true bread of life in his son Jesus and it can overcome any false religion. And we praise the Lord for that. Because you know, there are countries out there that have nothing but the poisonous gourds. That's all they teach. It's all they have. But man, when the Lord brings the, the bread of life in there, there is life eternal. And the Lord blesses those folks. So verse 42, it goes on. Then a man came from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits. 20 loaves of barley bread and newly ripened grain in his knapsack. And he said, give it to the people that they may eat. So he brought, we're told here, the bread of the first fruits. Specifically tells us that's what this is the guy was bringing. And then he gave it to the man of God. That would be Elisha here, right? And somebody pointed out that according to the law of Moses, they were supposed to bring their first fruits to the Lord and to the temple. And then these would help the priests to have food for themselves and their families. But at this time in Israel's history, the priests were not faithful in their service to the Lord. Anyway, they were leading people into worshiping idols. So this man brought food to help feed those who were being faithful in their service to the Lord. So he brings it to Elisha and the sons of the prophets to try to minister to them because they are doing God's work. So we see here too that Elisha cared for people. Did you notice here he said the same thing here that he said in verse 41. He wanted to make sure the people got some food to eat. And remember, this is during a time of famine. So it wasn't to say, hey, let's, let's get some food for the guys. He's saying these folks, they need food. They need that, so make sure they get some. And you think about it, Jesus did the same thing too, didn't he? He fed the people when he saw that they were in need of food. Our God takes such good care of his people. We just need to trust him and, and watch what the Lord does. So verse 43 goes on. But his servant said, What shall I set this before 100 men? 
He said again, give it to the people that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So the first thing that Elisha's servant said when, when he says, hey, give them this food and let them eat, uh, he's like, what are you telling me? There's 100 people out here. This is not going to feed them. And one of the things we may not catch is they said there are 20 loaves of barley bread, but the loaves back then we would actually call buns. <laughs> they weren't a full loaf like we're, we're thinking they're a little kind of a bun thing. So there were 20 buns, and obviously that's not going to feed 100 people, right, even with the extra grain that he had with him. And that's what this servant was kind of saying. It's like, this is not going to work. You know, I know you want to help these folks, but there are a lot of folks that are going to go hungry here if we just give them the 20 buns here and even that extra grain. So his servant was correct. It's not going to feed these people in normal circumstances. <laughs> but when the Lord intervenes, he can meet every single need and then some. And that's what he's going to do here. So the rest of verse 43, this is Elisha speaking, and he said again, same order, same thing he said the first time, give it to the people that they may eat. And then he expands on it why he's saying this, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So Elisha's letting his servant know this wasn't going to be an ordinary meal because the Lord was going to supernaturally provide and he was was going to provide food in abundance I mean, you think this isn't enough with God involved this is more than enough right yeah so <laughs> it's cool to see the Lord work like that but I was thinking this might be another good prayer for us to pray Lord please provide abundantly for our meal but you know you might be thinking wait a minute we live in America we got plenty of food here and that's true but, you know, you, if you've been through some of the drive throughs that we've been through, you may find that you don't get all the stuff you've ordered. So you might say, Lord, please provide abundantly as we go through this drive through Make sure we get what we ordered. Uh, maybe you don't run into that, but some of us with bigger families, we, we do. <laughs> we find out we make a big order, and by the time you get home, it's like, whoa, somebody didn't get their stuff, right? So, Lord, please provide an abundance. <laughs> and uh, I apologize, too. If somebody's listened to us today and they work at a drive-thru, but please count the items before you hand the bag out the window. <laughs> and please and thank you when <laughs> you say that, right? <laughs> so verse 44, so he set it before them and they ate and lo and behold, they had some left over according to the word of the Lord. So we get a couple things from the story. First, when Jesus fed the multitudes during his earthly ministry, Remember, he did that a couple of times. It should have reminded the people about this story of Elisha. And it should have caused them to, to stop and at least consider, you know, looking at Jesus and thinking, he does stuff like Elisha does. And, and I mean, in even huge numbers, right? I mean, these are 100 people. The Lord expanded the food and it worked. But Jesus fed thousands from just a little bit of food. They didn't have 20 buns here when Jesus was feeding them, right? So it should have caused them to stop and to think about that. But unfortunately, the people that Jesus was feeding when he fed the multitudes were pretty much like us. <laughs> they just wondered, Jesus, when are you going to feed us again? <laughs> they were worried about, wait a minute, we just witnessed a miracle here. We don't see that reaction. They're just thinking, I want another meal. You got more where that came from? A second lesson we get here, and it's another practical lesson. 
is that God takes care, and he takes very good care of us. He will even provide supernaturally if he needs to. You know, remember, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things would be added to you. So if you're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that means you're one of his children, because the world's not doing that. And God always takes care of his children. So Elisha was the one that the Lord was using here to provide miracles through, but it was the Lord who was doing the miracles. And Elisha would be the first one to amen that. Okay, we see that from the way he, he handled things. So we're going to see more of that too. And you know, it's interesting that during this time, there were still those who worshiped Baal in the northern kingdom. And Baal was supposed to be the God over the weather. Kind of interesting. But he was not able to provide rain to avoid this famine. And yet, the people are still foolishly worshiping him anyway. But notice something amazing here. Our God doesn't even need the weather to provide for his people. Isn't that cool? Even during a famine, when the weather wasn't cooperating, God still provided for his children in abundance. Isn't that cool? So when the circumstances in our life, they look like things just can't work, you know? Don't forget that we serve a God that can do the impossible. You know, in bad circumstances, don't hinder him at all from meeting our needs. I know sometimes people can feel like they're at the end of the rope and they're ready to throw in the towel, but, but don't forget this story of Elisha because it teaches us that even lousy circumstances don't stop our God from taking care of us. You know, and that's why we say never give up and never give in. Our God is not done working yet. And man, it hurts. So like we were praying this morning for, for folks that are thinking suicide and that. It's like, man, you have not seen what God can do. Do not listen to those lies in your head. That's the enemy trying to take you out. Don't listen to those things because God can do amazing things. It's unbelievable what our Lord can do. I think a lot of times, you know, people haven't even started to see what God can do with their life. So don't give up. Instead, give in. Surrender to the Lord. And I think you'll be surprised and amazed at how the Lord can change things. I think we've all witnessed that. If we walk with the Lord for long enough, we're like, wow, Lord, you've blown us away at times. And we thought things were really bad. And you turned things around and lifted us up and encouraged us. And we've seen your hand of blessing. Let's go to chapter 5, verse 1. Now, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria. So we're introduced to this new guy here, Naaman. Uh, it says he was the commander of the army of the king of Syria. He was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. And it tells us here, because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. So he's from Syria, he's not from Israel. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. So this, this Naaman, he's a very interesting man in the Bible. He's not an Israelite, he was a Gentile. And we're told here that he was a commander of the Syrian army. So he's very high ranking. And he was a great man and an honorable man in the eyes of his master. And we're told why his master thought so highly of him. Because the Lord had given him victory to Syria through him. That's really interesting. The Lord was at work in this guy's life. And I don't think he realized it at the time. But 
when he marched out and he seemed to always come back with a victory, that's why, because God was doing that. And the king that was over him, he's noticing, man, this guy, he does, never comes back with a loss. He always comes back with a victory. So this guy's wonderful. It's the kind of commander you want, right? And it also said he was a mighty man of valor. So I don't mean this to hurt anybody's feelings, but he's not a Barney Five, okay? He's a guy that you look at and say, this is the man we want to be out in front of us here. Uh, he, he shows it by his demeanor, his posture, his ability, his skills. He's the man, okay? So it tells us a good, good deal about him. Now, can you picture how this guy would look if he were in our modern times? He shows up in uniform, and we see the emblems of his high rank. Then we see all the medals and awards that he has in his chest, and you say, wow, this guy is a serious soldier and a highly decorated officer. He is no joke. And you can tell that he's one of these guys that his countenance just demands respect. Do you know the type? <laughs> You've seen people like this? I think as close as we are to the military base, you probably ran into some of these folks somewhere along the way. So it looks like he had everything going for him except for one major problem. He was a leper. Wow. So that was almost worse than having cancer at that time because it was very visible to others and parts of your body would just start rotting off. And it wasn't really something that you could hide because it showed up on visible areas, okay? Now, a leper in those days was incurable. If Naaman would have been an Israelite under the law of Moses, he'd have been required to be isolated from the rest of the population. But the Syrians, they weren't under the law of Moses. They didn't follow that. So he was free to continue to serve in his military position, and the leprosy wouldn't stop him from that. But it must have been quite a sight to see him. You know, I mean, you're seeing all these achievements he's had, and you're also looking at this guy going, ah, I don't know if I want to be in his shoes, man. I know he's done some good stuff, but ah, that, that leprosy, that's, that's bad. So verse 2, and the Syrians had gone out on raids, and they had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. So she ends up, looks like, working in the very home of Naaman. Now this is interesting. As they've gone on raids in different areas around them, they just happened to have a raid in the land of Israel. And it just so happened that they captured this young Israelite girl, and it just so happened that she ended up being a servant in the very home of Naaman. Don't you love it when you see the Lord setting up circumstances like this because he's getting ready to work, you know? We know from the Bible and from our own experience walking with the Lord that when the Lord does things like this, he's getting ready to do something extraordinary. Yeah, so it's okay to get excited when you begin to see the Lord setting things up like this. That's why we get excited, you know, when we look at the end times prophecies and we start to see all of this stuff coming together before our very eyes because we know the Lord's getting ready to do something extraordinary. And we got, wow, yes, we're excited. And somebody said this, isn't it interesting where the Lord places us? Here's this young girl who has a very lowly position. She's a slave girl. I mean, what kind of authority does she have? None whatsoever. And, and yet, in that lowly position, she can tell people about the power of the Lord, and she's going to do that. 
and she can have an impact on the lives of others. So don't ever think, you know, that the Lord can't do something to impact the lives of others through you. Even if you think you've got a lowly position with no authority, it didn't stop the Lord from using this young gal. Pretty awesome. Verse 3, then she said to her mistress, so sure she is serving one day and doing what she's supposed to do, just a normal day for her, I'm sure. So she says to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. So this young girl cared enough about her master to speak up and let his wife know that there is help that's available. She knows that if her master could just get to Elisha, then he could be cured. Now, we see that this message gives hope to Naaman, so much so that he's going to go to the king and he's going to ask permission to go and see this prophet in Samaria. So verse 4, Naaman went in and he told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. And you almost can see him rushing through the story saying, Hey, man, there's something I can get done here. There's something I can do, and I'll get, get over this. So verse 5, Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed, and he took with him ten talents of silver. That's a lot. Six thousand shekels of gold. That's a whole lot. And ten changes of clothing. Now, we may not think much about the changes of clothing because we got Kohl's and Walmart, whatever you want to go do your shopping, right? They don't have that. So if you've got an extra set of clothes, you're doing really good. So they're sending 10 changes of clothing. It's like sending a department store to them, okay? I mean, it's like, you've got to be kidding me. So he's sending all of this stuff. So here's Naaman. He's all excited about the possibility of being cleansed from his leprosy, and we would be too if we were in his shoes, and, and we now find out there's some hope because it's incurable, right? And the king was all for this idea too. He, he immediately sends Naaman, and he even is going to send this official letter to the king of Israel. Verse 5, the king said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. You know, so he, he sends him with this official letter from the king to the king. And, and this is great wealth that the king was sending with Naaman too. So this tells us how highly the king of Syria valued Naaman's life. Now it may have been, you know, kind of a selfish note here, like this is, this is a great commander I got. I want to lose this guy. That leprosy is going to take him out one of these days. If he can get cured and he can get healthy, man, we're going to be good for a long time in our country because this guy is tough and he always comes back with a victory. So it makes sense that he would want him taken care of. So it's a very valuable treasure that he's sending along with him to kind of encourage the king of Israel to heal him, okay? And it's interesting here that Naaman believed what this young slave girl said, and so did the king. I mean, it's amazing. Look at the letter that he sent in verse 6. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, now be advised when this letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman my servant to you that you may heal him of his leprosy. Very simple, to the point. It basically says, heal him, you know, like it was a sure thing. <laughs> Don't forget, again, this was his incurable, incurable disease at that time. It amazes me as the, the power of the Lord is just kind of put out there for people from a little slave girl. Naaman, the commander of the army, believes what she said. And so does the king. He believes what was said. You know, that hopefully encourages us that we need to put the word of the Lord out there and just trust the Lord. 
She didn't make him believe. She didn't hold him down, force him, twist her arm, do anything. She just put it out there, and the Holy Spirit took the rest of it, right? And did the job. Same with us, but we have to put the word of the Lord out there. If she had never said anything, Naaman would have never known. This never would have been in the scripture for us to see. So he sends the letter. It's a very simple one. I want you to heal my guy. <laughs> Verse 7, and it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes. Here's <laughs> he said, am I God to kill and make alive? This, this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? I think he was, he was pretty shocked on one hand and probably upset that he didn't have the power to heal this guy, and yet somebody's insinuating that he does. So, boy, you talk about a humbling thing. Can you imagine somebody being brought before you and an impossible request laid on your lap? I want you to fix this. It's like, who do you think I am? I don't have that kind of power. Although he's king, he knows he's not God. Okay, pretty smart in that aspect. So he says, am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider. So he's talking to the guys in his courtroom here and his, uh, around his throne, and he, it's probably his counselors. And he said, I want you guys to think about this. See how he seeks a quarrel with me. So this is what he takes it as. The king, he's outraged at what's just been put before him. He doesn't quite get the letter. He concludes that this king must be mocking him. And therefore, he figured that the king of Syria is just looking for an excuse to go to war with him. Because everybody knows that nobody can heal leprosy. Everybody knows that. Only God can do something like that. So for you to throw this in my face, you're kind of putting me down, he takes it as, and I guess you just want to fight. But look what happens, verse 8. So it was, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes... <laughs> He heard about his little fitty through here. Then he sent to the king and he said, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. It's almost like Elisha saying, Why are you so upset? Did you forget there is a God? You know, and you can go to him and get some help. So Elisha is asking the king, Why did you react that way? Then he said, Let the guy come to me. You know, and don't miss Elisha's heart in this. He doesn't want to see this man healed and then send him back home and back to his life. Did you see what he said? He wants this man to know something. He wants Naaman to, to know that there is a true God and he has a prophet here in Israel. And that's just evidence that there's a true God. He's not saying, look at me, I'm this, this prophet guy. He wants Naaman to have the experience of knowing the true God in his life. What an encouragement for us. You know, we should desire not that a person just gets help in their life from the Lord, but that they have a personal experience with the presence of God in their life. See, the focus then is on the Lord, not on the person feeling better or getting some help. It's on helping them get to know and meet and be introduced to the true and living God. When we've got panhandlers that come to the church, you know, they just want to hand out but we want them to experience the Lord. It's not about them just getting a little help. What good does that do, you know? But if we can let them know that God is real and that he cares about them, then maybe they'll have a desire to turn their heart to the Lord. And that's our hope anyway, that they would do that. Uh, verse 9 goes on. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. 
This is an interesting picture. Lord gives us enough detail to kind of picture this. He shows up with his horses and his chariots, and he's probably got his entourage of his soldiers, his bodyguards, whoever he's taken with him on this journey. And he is standing at the, the door, it says, of Elisha's house. It doesn't say Elisha's mansion, his temple, his palace. It's just a house, okay? But he shows up, and here's this majestic guy standing at the door. So what do you do? Verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger to him. <laughs> and he says, <coughs> excuse me, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. And your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. So Elijah here, he doesn't even come to the door. Instead, he sends a messenger to speak with Naaman, you know. And I think what's going on, Elisha doesn't want him to think, I'm not God, and I don't have this power. God's over the power, he just works through me. So I don't need you to get to know me or experience me. You need to experience God. So he tells him, here's what you can do. And when he does that, he knows you're going to realize there's a true God because he just healed you of an incurable disease. I, it wasn't me. I just, I'm not that messenger. He just gave you the message. That's all it is, okay? So I thought it's interesting because this commander is standing there and he's, he's wanting to meet this prophet man of God. He's got expectations. We'll see. Let's look at verse 11. But Naaman became furious when the messenger came to the door and he went away and he said indeed I said to myself he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy so he was hoping there'd be some kind of magical mystical just woo kind of experience you know and instead all he does is send a messenger but he sent the messenger with the word of the Lord Naaman doesn't get that yet. He's going to, but at this point, he doesn't get it. And yet, from the from natural standpoint, we would be upset too, thinking, are you kidding me? I came to you for help, and all you do is send a messenger? I need more than that, right? So this is his expect, expectation, and obviously it's not going to happen the way he thought. So he's very mad about this. He had com completely different expectations than what actually happened. But again, Elisha wanted him to know it was God that healed him, not Elisha. Verse 12, so he's still going on. Are not the Arbana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? And those apparently are pretty beautiful and, and clear rivers up there in Damascus. And he says, could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. You know, he, he was very angry. He, he thought he deserved better treatment than this. The, the river that he was told to go wash in the Jordan was a muddy place. It's my understanding is still pretty muddy today. So to tell him to go wash in the in the mud pool rather than go in this go back to your place in these beautiful rivers, these very clear places, and and get there and get cleansed, he's telling him to do something that doesn't make any sense. And a matter of fact, he's insulted by this. I'm supposed to go get in your dirty water? We got water that's better than all the water in Israel. I don't need your water here, okay? But he's gonna learn something important here. It's not in the method, it's in obedience. It's in obeying the Lord. That's where the power of the Lord is found. And praise the Lord, he's got some wise servants. Verse 13, his servants came near and they spoke to him and they said, my father, 
If the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? <laughs> he was expecting something great. You know, so if he said, I want you to take your chariots and march around this city seven times or ten times or something, he just said, yes, I'm going to go do that. <laughs> he says, how much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? It's like they're saying, you're missing the point. Forget the method. Don't worry about the method. Look at the result of obedience. If you obey, you will wash and you will be clean. Now, they spoke very respectful to him because this is a guy that could end their life in a moment. <laughs> He's a tough, tough dude, and nobody's going to question his actions, right? So they're very respectful to him, which might be a good lesson for us. You know, speak kindly to people. Sometimes I know our flesh may rise up and we're thinking, you idiot. <laughs> but we need to just try to hold that back and say, Lord, give me the right words. Help me to be filled with your spirit, your humility right now, your love, and, and say this so it'll be received without any barriers. So they tell him that, verse 14. So he went down and he dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. These were the specific directions. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Man, you know that flesh the kids have? It's just pure. It's pretty. It's nice. It's not like when we get older and get the wrinkles and all that stuff and the spots or whatever else we get, you know. But it's the flesh of a little child. It's really amazing to, to see this has to be God, right? So he decided to humble himself and obey. And he found that the power of the Lord was found in obedience. Now notice the, 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 the picture here. Leprosy needs, needed to be cleansed, okay? And only can be cleansed one way, by God. Sin needs to be cleansed too, but some people will get offended by that too, and they say, how can it do anything at all by me just putting my faith in Jesus Christ? How can that do anything? You've got to be kidding me. You know, people stumble over this just like Naaman stumbled here. But God shows the way to cleanse Naaman, and God shows the way to cleanse sinners, and it's only by Christ. Now, we should be thankful there is one way of salvation rather than no way of salvation. <laughs> and somebody said this. I thought they could have been said to Naaman as well when he was upset about all this. There, there are two rules in the universe. Number one, God is real. And number two, you are not him. <laughs> I think that could be said to all of us. If God says to do something, you better think twice before you say, no, I don't think so, <laughs> because you are not God. And so it's interesting here. He was wanting things a little different. Verse 15, so he did it. He obeyed. He was cleansed. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides. So he did come with his entourage. And he came and he stood before him and he said, indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. Somebody said, this is one of the most beautiful salvation experiences in the Bible. Here's a king, here's a commander who humbled himself and did what he didn't want to do. But he was told by God, this is what you need to do. 
And what he did, he was saved. God not only cleansed his leprosy, he met God. He was introduced to God. He was now a follower of God. He said, there's no God in this entire world except for the God of Israel. Wow, what a statement for a Gentile, right? So it worked. This man had an experience with the true God, and now he knows that God is real. And he's even wanting to, to give Elisha something for this. It's like, man, I'm so, so thankful. I want to give you stuff here. I want to bless you. And Elisha very wisely has an answer in verse 16. He said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. So Elijah, he didn't want to get paid for something that he didn't do. God healed him, not Elisha. So Elisha's like, I'm not taking anything from you. He didn't want to give the wrong impression where this guy down the road is thinking, okay, I got this tremendous grace, but I paid for it now. No, Elisha's not going to let that thought even come to him. It's like, no, I want nothing. Now, you picture this from, from the commander's perspective, and it, everybody goes back to, to Syria to tell. You mean that guy did all this for you, didn't charge you anything? No, nothing. The grace of God is so powerful. That's why we love to do stuff for folks, and when they try to pay or give you something, you say, no, I just want you to know God loves you. The grace of God is so powerful, you know? So it says here, after he says, I'm not going to receive anything. I, as the Lord lives before I'm going to stand, I'll receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And so he's saying, please, you got to take this. you got to take it. And he says, no, I, I'm not going to take this. And it's, it's a beautiful picture of him just letting him bask in the grace of God. So verse 17, so Naaman said, then if not, Please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth. So you want to take some of the, the dirt from, from Israel. For your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Okay? So he, this is something they had back in their understanding from the pagans back then, that God has to be worshipped in a certain place. And since you're God, I met him here, and I'm sure you worship him here. I'm sure this is where he wants to be worshipped, and I can't stay, so I want to take some of this dirt back with me, and then maybe your God, like somebody said, will feel more at home when I worship him at my place. So he's got a little mess up in his theology, okay? But, but he's a new believer, brand new believer. So do you slam him and say, you fool, don't you know what God is like? No, praise God. Elisha says in verse 18, yet in this thing, I'm sorry, uh, He's just still talking to her. Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant. Notice the conviction he's under. When my master, talking when the king, back in, his, in, uh, in uh, Syria, when a king goes into the temple of Ramon to worship there, and he leans on my hand. I mean, I'm his right-hand guy. I'm right there by him, and I bow down in the temple of Ramon. He said, when I bow down in the temple of Rome, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Man, this is amazing. This guy's saying, look, when I go back home, my king's going to still require me to be right next to him when he worships his false idol. I know there's nothing to this, but I'm going to have to be there. You know, that's, that's part of what I have to do. And he's saying, may the Lord forgive me when I'm in there and I'm looking like I'm following this false God because in my heart, I am not. So he's saying, may the Lord forgive me. What is so cool about this is this guy's convicted. That never bothered him when he left. <laughs> 
when he went, he just went through the ritual. Yeah, sure, whatever, whatever we're going to do this, you know, good, praise God or whatever. Now he's convicted. Great sign of a new believer. Great sign. He's bothered by that, you know? And again, is he going to be corrected here? Elijah's going to say, no, man, you're really messed up. We've got to straighten this stuff out. No, look what he says to him. Verse 19, he says, go in peace. <laughs> He's got some stuff going on here, right? He wants to take some dirt with him. He said, I'm going to have to go worship the side with my boss. I hope it, uh, your God, my God now doesn't hold against me. And instead of just saying, we need to talk about some stuff, man. Let's go get some coffee. No, <laughs> he wisely stays out of the way here. Because you know what? Our God's big enough to work in this guy's life. And he's able to correct things down the road, you know? Yeah. So it says, so he departed from there and he went a short distance. He's on his way back to the, the kingdom in Syria here. But Elisha doesn't blast him. Instead, he gives him grace. And he gives the Lord room to work these things out in his life later. Elisha knew that he did what the Lord told him to do, and he didn't go any further. I'm sure if the Lord would have said, you need to correct him on this, he would have. But the Lord didn't. So Elisha's like, this is between him and God. And I know in the right time, God's going to work this out. Okay? So please give people grace, not judgment or condemnation. Especially new believers. The Lord's going to work things out. Uh, he's going to work things out for them at a time when they're ready to handle it. Okay? That's what he did for you, right? Work things out when you needed to. When you're ready, you could handle it and, and take care of that next thing that God is, is showing you. I had opportunity to, to see somebody come to Christ. And after seeing that, they, they were from the Roman Catholic background. And they said, I hope you don't get upset about this, but I want to, I feel more comfortable going back to the Roman Catholic Church. And thankfully, I felt the Lord, you know, just shutting my lips. And it's like, like I'm not going to say anything. I knew they had a Bible. I knew that we had started a disciple and got him in that process. And they said they wanted to go back to the Catholic Church. And I said, no, that's okay. Because I'm thinking it's between you and the Lord on this one. And lo and behold, it took two years, which was longer than I was ready for. But it took two years. Finally, they called one day and said, I went to that, that service today at the Catholic Church. And I didn't get nothing. Do you think I can come to a church that, that you know of that teaches the Bible? I said, you are very welcome to come to that. And the Lord took that person out of the Roman Catholic Church, put them in a Bible-believing church, and they were there every time the door was open. God did that. We can trust the Lord to work things out in people's lives. We've got to give grace to people. Hey, if the Lord is putting on your heart, you need to say something. You'll know it's from the Lord if it's in kindness and in love. But if it's in condemning, judging, shoving him up against the wall, that is not the way the Lord does things, okay? So please, give people grace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your powerful word. I pray that you spoke to our hearts today, that you moved us by your spirit to say, Lord, I want to do your will. I want to see your blessing in my life. If someone is here today, Lord, and they've been struggling, or somebody is watching us, and they have been struggling and fighting with things, Lord. I pray today you help them to just surrender to you. You told us we can cast all of our care on you because you care so much for us, Lord. Help us just to release things into your hand and trust you, Lord, and watch you work. Thank you, Lord, for every single thing that you're doing. We 
We pray that you'd uh, work in our hearts, prepare us for the work you have for us to do down the road here, and we just want to give you the praise for that now. In Jesus' precious name, amen.